0: Hey y'all, my name is
1: Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emanuel and Hooksett. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. We're starting a new series this morning. It's it's really a series called The Basics, and, and I don't want you to check out. I want you to check in, because we all need to be reminded of the fundamentals. We all need to be reminded of the important things of the faith. So I coach middle school football, and this year I'm going to be a floater coach, it uh, means I'm maybe stuck. I mean, have the blessing of coaching 3, 4 grade, grades 3 and 4, maybe 4, 5, and 6. And when you're coaching those grades, what do you have to teach them? Everything. You got to teach them the basics, right? We go over, heads up, football, right? Keep your head up, don't tackle, don't spear, all this kind of stuff. Those are the fundamentals, teaching them how to break down and tackle. And I know you guys are like, how many of you like football? We well, got about 20. Of the whole sanctuary of the like football. So some of you are not following this idea, but it, it'll connect in a second here. Uh, as you get older and you're playing this game, it could be football, it could be bowling, could be baseball, could be any number of things, right? As you get older, sometimes what happens is you let the fundamentals slip, right? How many of you guys know who Tom Brady is? Anybody know Tom Brady? Some of you know Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady is the goat. I am so glad he left New England. I'm glad he's in Tampa. It's my NFC team now. Um, Tom Brady, right? Arguably the best quarterback ever to play the game of football. Do you realize that from time to time he gets with his quarterback coach, and you know what they go through? The basics. They go through the fundamentals. He'll he'll watch himself on film, and he'll realize, oh, I'm not I'm not stepping into my throw, or I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not rotating my hips enough, right? I'm not, I'm not doing a follow through. Uh, my L is off. I'm dropping my elbow. He'll go through those fundamentals and his accuracy will increase. Uh, the length of the throw will increase because he let the fundamentals slip. Now, most people would say, why the heck does Tom Brady need to go through the fundamentals? Because as we get older, sometimes we let things slip. Uh, we don't think they're that important to us. We think, hey, I'm all set, Right? none of us are all set. None of us have arrived until we get to heaven. And the other reason to go through the basics of the fundamentals is that we have a lot of new believers in our church right now. We have people that have recently come to Christ, people that have come to Christ years ago but hadn't really plugged themselves into a local church and been part of a family and and learned and grew uh, in the faith in those fundamental areas, right? So they have some They have a lot of knowledge, and and Paul says, you know, zeal without knowledge is not good, so they have a lot of zeal, but their knowledge is suspect. So I'm going to just take a moment here to kind of, I've been talking to a few people about this. You have to be careful where you get your spiritual nourishment from. There's a lot of people that sound very spiritual in the world today. Do you agree with that? You know what I can't stand? I cannot stand super spiritual people. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't really like religion, anyways. But I can't stand people that are like, oh my goodness, praise Jesus, I just cut my arm off. You know, um, you can go, ah, oh, I cut my arm off, Lord, please help me, right? That's fine. You know, people that spiritualize everything, oh, I stubbed my toe, what's Jesus trying to tell me? He's trying to tell you to turn the lights on, dummy, right? You stubbed your toe. Um, but there's people, they, they build up all these spiritual philosophies, and then they share them in books, or they share them online. And young and new believers and sometimes old believers who have drifted from the fundamentals, they get sucked into these things because they're really interesting and they're, they're really fascinating and they're powerful, and, but they're not. They're fruitless and they're lies in some cases. And so that's why it's really important for us to make sure that we've nailed down our fundamentals. So don't check out on me. You guys that are old dogs, you're long in the tooth, right? You got some gray in your beard, ladies. Um, no, I mean, I was thinking of my mother-in-law. Hi, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So she's watching. That's freaking hilarious. Um, What is the church? What is the church? I think that's a good question, because you're here. You evidently think that church is, is important enough to give up your Sunday morning to come to the church, whatever that is. But do we really know what the church is? Do we understand the value of the church? You know, the Bible says in Ephesians that Jesus loved the church so much, he gave himself for her. So the church, we know, is important to Jesus. It's so important to Jesus that he gave his life to the church. Now, how many of us would say, I'm ready to lay it down for the church? The Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay his life down for his friends. Now, Jesus, we see, places a high priority on church. And so that begs the question, what is church? What is church? So we're going to go through... A couple of things that I, I hope will be a blessing to you and encourage you by the time we finish this message up. I want you to turn in your Bibles. This is on the Bible app, the UVersion Bible app. You can go on that app. You can go to events, find Emmanuel Baptist Church, click on that event and follow through. If you have an account, you can make notes and you can save it to your account so you will have like this running commentary on the sermons that we preach on. In, in Matthew chapter 16, verses number 13 through 20, Let's read together. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, "Who who do men, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" So they said, "Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, some say you're Elijah." Others, Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. So they're, they're thinking, many people think you're someone who has <laughs> come again. He said to them, but okay, so these are the people out on the periphery. These are the people that are hearing of, of my fame spreading out through the region, right? These are the people that are on the outside looking in. But who, who do you say I am? You people that know me, who do you say that I am? And this is like, this is a momentous occasion, right? Simon Peter gets a lot of things wrong as he's going through his life. He tries to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem, be crucified, and save the world, right? He, he, he messes up with, with believing that salvation is only for the Jews, and, and, and Paul had to set him straight on that, and God set him straight once already, and then he makes the same mistake again. And so Peter is, is one of my favorite guys in the Bible because he reminds me of me, he's making the same mistakes over and over again, but God still loves him and uses him. There's something in that, and listen, there's something in there for you who are discouraged, and you're down, and you're beating yourself up because you keep screwing up. Peter was a screw-up, and God used him greatly. He was an amazing man as God worked through him. Simon Peter answered and said, Here's one of his best things he's ever done. You are the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. It wasn't time yet. So Jesus is the founder of the church. This was the beginning of the church. This was the very beginning of the church. He he says that that the, the, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. Who is the builder of the church? Is it me? It's Jesus. So I planted a church up in, up in Bosco and Pentecook, uh, and, and there was a pastor who had wandered away from the Lord. He was away from the Lord for 20 years. He'd gotten very disenchanted with the group he was with, and he was angry. And, and he would tell you this himself. His, his grandson was born with Massive complications, ended up down in Boston Children's, and his mother had a sign a document that said if the son didn't pull through, that they could have the son's body for scientific use and research. You imagine that? The only way they were willing to try to rescue this kid was if they got the body if it didn't work. Well, they rescued the kid by the glory and grace of God, and he's down in Tennessee, and he's, he's healthy, and he's functioning, and he's married. He has twin girls, right Trish? Uh, And just an awesome miraculous story, right? His dad said, his grandfather said to me, this was the, the pastor that I had met, he couldn't even pray during that time. He was a believer. He knew Jesus as his savior, but he had walked away from God. He was so angry and he was so bitter that he couldn't even pray when his grandson was in the hospital. And while I'm planting this church, another pastor is saying, hey, there's a friend of mine there's a friend of mine. He's up in your area. Can you go look for him? Can you find him? He needs to come back to the Lord. And so we found him and he promptly ignored us. Uh, but his, his, his daughter started coming to Lighthouse. Uh, his wife, I think, started coming to Lighthouse first. And then he showed up. Oh, oh dude, this guy. <laughs> his hair's all over the place. He's dressed like a bum. I mean, he was testing everything that I had. He, I gotta check out this young gun for myself. And he came in, and let me tell you something. This is what happened. He thought that he had gone too far from the Lord. He thought God did not want him back. Now, he knew he was going to heaven when he died, but he thought here on earth, God was done with him, had no use for him. And when he found that lighthouse, was that God's grace is still amazing. And God poured his grace into him and redeemed him, and he began to work with me, and it was a beautiful thing. And I'm not going to give you his name, but one day he said to me, because he was a church planter, and he had planted this church, and this was probably part of the problem. The church grew ridiculously fast. Uh, And so he came to me one day, and he said, Hey, Eric, pastor, boy, we're going to build this church now. We're going to build this church now." "And he said I had all of his ideas on all these different things, and we are going to build this church now." And I said, well, actually, we're not We are not going to build anything. Because if the church is going to be built, it has to be built by Jesus. That's it. It has to be built by Jesus. Now, we contribute to that, do we not? We contribute to that insofar as we are obedient to the Word of God and to the promptings and proddings of the Holy Spirit. That is how God builds His church, through us. But He is the one that gives the increase. Now, in fact, Jesus, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. The cornerstone. Ancient times, they they would go to build a building and they would set the cornerstone first. And the cornerstone was the, 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 the part of that foundation that everything else was going to be measured from. So they'd set this giant block, and how square the building was depended on this giant block. How level the, how level the building was was dependent upon this giant cornerstone. The cornerstone set the, set the standard for the rest of the building. And that's who Jesus is in the church. He is the founder of the church. He is the builder of the church. And he is that which the church is measured by, right? The church has to follow the guidelines that the cornerstone has set. Y'all tracking with me? We can't go off and build something apart from the cornerstone. What happens is when churches do that, they get all at a level, They get all out of plumb. False doctrines creep into the church. Man gets glory. God exits the church. And it becomes a church of just men and just women. Empty and devoid of the Spirit of God. Now there are churches like that today. There are churches that, that do not follow the cornerstone. They seem to think... That Jesus and what he has said and what he stands for is variable or flexible. And they seem to think that they can change the Bible to suit the culture. And that is a major problem with churches today. It's a major problem with Christians today. We use the culture to tell us what is right and what is wrong. How many of you think that's a good idea? We've advanced as a society enough that we now know that this is right and this is wrong. Germany thought that when they enslaved and murdered the Jews and the homosexuals and the disabled. Germany, man, they were cutting edge educationally, scientifically. They were the cream of the crop. They were the best of the best, and they thought they were. And if you used that culture to determine what was right and wrong, do you think that's a good idea? Who thinks that's a good idea today? Let's go back to 1940s Germany and use that culture. Why do we think this culture is any best better than that culture? Because however many years have passed, and so that makes, it, that makes us better. Years, time, makes us better. Technology makes us better. Some people would argue that technology has made us worse. The things that we can reach and the people groups that are being created online where initially it was one person who had a crazy, insane, and sick thought, right? He thought he was by himself and he's sitting in his basement alone. Next thing you know, he finds out online, oh, there's a bunch of people like me that think the same way. And technology creates this group of people that are sick and twisted and perverted. And now they have a community and that community allows them to grow in their perversions and support each other, Has technology really made us better? Are we really that much smarter? We have not evolved, people. We're the same as we have ever been. So we can't use the culture as our cornerstone. Christians, the world can use the culture as their cornerstone. They don't have Jesus. They don't have the truth. They don't have the word of God. But those of us that have the truth, Those of us that know Jesus, we have no right twisting his words to suit our culture. He is the plumb line. He is the level. He is the cornerstone. So when we have our motto in our church, bless God, what we're saying is that everything that we do honors and glorifies and pleases God. Everything we do... When as a church, if we're going to start a ministry or stop a minute, we want to ask that question, does it bring a smile to the face of Jesus? Does this honor and glorify God? Because he is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. Today, we don't really use a lot of that. We build a foundation and we use lasers and all this kind of stuff. But let me tell you, this is a foundational concept. Jesus is our cornerstone. If Jesus is against it, so am I. If Jesus is for it, so am I. Now, we're going to go on here. We know now, right, who founded the church? Who founded the church? Did Peter found the church? No. Peter did not found the church. Did Paul found the church? Jesus is the founder. He is the cornerstone. But it doesn't stop there. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the... This is interesting because there's people that would say, Jesus is the foundation. It's only Jesus that's the foundation. And this is where I get into the idea that people can sound really spiritual, and they can sound really smart, but they can be wrong. Jesus is the cornerstone. What's the foundation? What's the foundation? The apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That's that's important for us to understand because now we know Jesus and we know what he said because we have the red letters in the four gospel accounts of Jesus. But it doesn't end there, does it? Now, here's another spiritual concept that people will say. I met a person and he said this. I don't read any of the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament, it's important and it's good, but it's not really the words of Jesus. Like the words of Jesus, that's way more important than the epistle to the Ephesians. And the epistle, that's a letter, the letter to the Philippians or the Thessalonians or the Corinthians. Like the red letters are the most important. That is, those red letters are like, those are the word of God. The rest of it is just these other people. And Jesus is saying, no. No, he's the cornerstone, but the prophets and the apostles are the foundation as well. And we're going to find out where we, find, where, where we can, how, that, how does that benefit us, right? So let's go on. He says, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also were being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. So the apostles are the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation. And so what does it mean that the apostles are the foundation? I think this is a a good question that we should ask, right? So the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets are found in the word of God. The Bible gives us the lives and the words of the apostles and prophets. And so this is where we say, not only are the letters in red the foundational statements of the church, but so too are those New Testament letters written by Paul and Peter and Jude and James and John. You follow? The Bible is the foundation as well as Jesus. Because the Bible reveals to us the writings of the prophets and the apostles. I want you to think about the the chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 called the roll call of faith it's often called the roll call of faith so we not only have the the writings of the apostles and of the prophets but we actually have the testimonies of the apostles and the prophets and a foundation sets the stage for everything else right you fall right? the foundation sets the stage and so when you start to read the roll call of faith, and you start to read about these apostles and these prophets and what they did and what they said. That should settle you in your faith. It should establish you in your faith. In fact, we'll we'll learn later on about uh, the lives of those who are among you right now, other pieces of the building of God, pastors and teachers and evangelists in their place. In your life as a Christian and as a church. So the apostles, the prophets, are also foundational with Christ as the cornerstone. This is why the Bible is so important. I belonged to a group years ago, I still admin it, it's pretty much dead, but it was called What Does the Bible Say? Well, what does the Bible say? And there were a lot of people that ended up joining that group that they could care less what the Bible said, they just wanted to argue. The question of what does the Bible say ought to be one of our chief answers when people start challenging us. Well, what does the Bible say and what does it mean? Not, and I'm going to give you a little, we'll get on the, we'll get to this later, but um, not what does it mean to you? Okay, are you guys following, what, the, what does this mean to me? What well, just means this to me? How about just what does it mean? How about just what does it mean? Uh, The Bible is not of any private interpretation. What does it mean? Contextually, historically, literarily, what does it mean? A lot of people tend to over-spiritualize things so they can rip from context passages of Scripture to support their pet doctrines and pet theories and in in some cases, perversions. So, we know the apostles are the foundation, and that foundation is found where? Where is it found? Thank you, I hope I got that clear. It's found in the Bible. It's found in the Bible, guys! It's not you sitting there, and I was going to sit down and cross my legs, but I don't know if I'd be able to get up again. Kind of a joke, but maybe not. And... um. Meditating, oh, Apostle Paul, what do you say about this? You could just open the book and read it. It's right there. It's right there. In fact, if you feel the Holy Spirit prodding you in a direction that is contrary to what the Bible says, that's not a Holy Spirit prodding you. And there are evil spirits who are against the Holy Spirit. And here's the reality, they're against you too. Now, we're going to talk about the universal church, the church universal. And I know that in fundamentalist circles, they say, there is no such thing as a universal church. I'm going to half agree with them because the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church is the called out ones, the gathering together, the assembly. And the universal church has not yet been gathered together, but it has been called out as we're going to talk about the, the Church Universal, and this is who is in the Church Universal. Those are in the, those that are in the Church Universal, all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their one and only personal savior, not in their good works, not in their local church membership, not in their baptism, not in keeping the law. But those who have trusted in Christ alone, who, like Peter, have said, you are the Son of the living God, and there is no other, and my faith is in you and the you alone. Now, those who have trusted in Christ are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, which is the church universal. It's the church in a general sense that Jesus was speaking of in Matthew 16. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the church that he was building physically was local. We're going to look at that next week. It was those disciples and those apostles and those, and, and the, and, 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 and the, um, yeah, those disciples and apostles that were right there with him. It was a local church, but it was representative of the church universal. And how do I know that? Because the church at Jerusalem is no more. That church is not there anymore. That local church is gone. The local church that Paul founded in Ephesus, it's not there anymore. It's gone. We know the seven churches in Revelation, even while they were still called churches, some of them were no longer churches, gone. But Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that's a capital C church. That is his body. There will always be until the rapture comes a body of believers who trust in Christ alone as their savior. So the church universal, all those that have trusted in Christ. And here's the encouragement. It may get bad out there. This culture is already abandoning the underpinnings of society really they're abandoning things that are fundamental to successful societies they're following the path of rome and there have been cultures that have been wicked and heinous nero the emperor of rome accusing the christians for burning down rome and starting a massive persecution of the church And they had to flee, and those local churches ceased to exist. But here's the reality. It might get bad, but the church of Jesus Christ will not fold. It will not fail. It will not cease to exist. You will be able to find a local body of believers who represents the universal church because it will not fold. And that should encourage you today. The church of Jesus will endure forever. Now, celebrity pastors, there's a music box out there. Celebrity pastors may fail. They may fall. You know what I mean by a celebrity pastor? Um, I don't know. Mark Driscoll, Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, there are pastors of national renown. They may blow it. They They may lose their sound doctrine and teach something that goes against the Bible. They may fail, but the church of Jesus Christ will not fail. Local pastors may fall and fail, but the church of Jesus will not fall and fail. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ will endure to the end until they're all called home. There will be the church. Now Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse number four. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. This is Jesus assembled together with his disciples. He said to them, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we have the church universal and i want to bring a i want to bring some attention to this the church is empowered it's not the power it's, it's it's not the power of a celebrity pastor it's not the power of a charismatic pastor and somebody that everybody loves and can speak really well that's not the power of the church the, the power of the church is not that that former pastor that came into the church and said we're going to build this church because i'm going to work really really hard That's that's not the power of the church. The power of the church is not working really, really hard. That's not the power of the church. What is the power of the church? Jesus said it. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so in in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we're gonna go there in just a second. So all let me let me clarify: all believers who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior are, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm gonna be talk about fundamentals, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit coming up. So just hang on for the ride. We're going to get into the Holy Spirit, but I want to teach you something really quick before we jump on. Listen, all those who have trusted Jesus have been filled with, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verse 37 and 39, Jesus teaches that truth. Okay, you can go check that out later. Uh, But we are all indwelled. However, there's a separate teaching that even though the Holy Spirit is with us always and he indwells us, right? He, he's living within us. There is a separate teaching of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that is the empowerment that God gives us for service. In Ephesians he says, and be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And Luke Jesus teaches his disciples, ask the Father and he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is distinct from the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit is what seals you until the day of redemption. The indwelling of the Spirit is what marks you as a child of God. Okay, that's the indwelling. The filling is what empowers you for. Service. We'll talk about that later, but the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. It was founded by Christ and it was empowered by the Holy Spirit as in what is referred to as the day of Pentecost. And we need to daily be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even though he already lives within us, consider filling as removing the barriers between you and he and allowing him to fill your entire being, obeying him, following him, hearing him throughout all of your life. (sighs) Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one place, in one accord. We're going to hit that in a little bit. Where was the church? Where, Where was the church? Now listen, there was only one local church back then. Just the church at Jerusalem. Where were they? They were together in one place. I was on a, on a Facebook group and talking about is the church the building, is the church people? And there's people really upset about this. I don't need to belong to a local church. I belong to the universal church. It does not, I don't. And I'm like, okay. One guy said, well, that church uh, didn't gather together in a big place, it just gathered together in houses. And I thought, well, that ignores the passage where it said that they gathered together in the. T- in the temple courtyard, the only place big enough for those that were saved to gather together. They gathered together in a corporate way like we are today. And then they gathered together in smaller groups. Hmm. Right, Peter? In smaller groups, house to house. fellowshipping, eating, worshiping, encouraging each other. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. They were with all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, one sat upon each of them. This must have been something else, man. Can you imagine? This is the beginning of the empowerment of the local church, and it was spectacular. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he did something for them. He enabled them to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. He gave them this ability. And they were dwelling, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in what? What does it say? What were they speaking in? The language? of every nation under heaven that was gathered in Jerusalem. This is important for you all to grasp, okay? This is the first instance of the miracle of tongues in the Bible, in the New Testament. Then they were all amazed, and they marveled, wouldn't you? Saying to one another, look, aren't all these people who speak, aren't they all Galileans? How is it then that we hear each one in our own language, in the language which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Frigga and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We, we hear them speaking in our own tongues... Let's just pause there. What tongues were they speaking in? Well, you just got a list. You just got a list. I think God was making a point. He gave you a list. He gave you a list. They were speaking in tongues of Asians, Arabs, Egyptians, <clears throat> all those other words that are hard to pronounce because I don't have the gift of tongues. Folks, I don't have the gift of tongues. I hate to disappoint you. I took Greek. And um, I recognized, I passed, I passed, but I recognized that languages are not my gift. It was brutal, and I hated every minute of it. These people had a gift. They didn't have to work at it. They didn't go to school. God just, threw the Holy Spirit, boom, you can speak. In the language of the people that are gathered, it was miraculous, it was amazing, it was unmistakable, it was powerful, but what did they speak? That's important as well, isn't it? It wasn't like, look how awesome I am. What do they speak? What does it say? The wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking and said, they're full of new wine they're drunk. And then Peter gets up and he argues with them. How can we be drunk? It's only 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and then he preaches this awesome message. And I'm thinking, Trish and I were at Universal Orlando in uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and we were getting on the line for the hippogriff. Uh, no, we were getting on the line of Hagrid's thing. Anyways, you don't care. And um, we're going through line, and there's a guy on the other side of the rope with a Foster's beer. And right? uh, Anybody? the can was like this big. Like, it was almost like a, I don't know, it was gigantic. I'm like, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Wow. So Peter could possibly be mistaken when that was his argument. He could have probably made a better argument than, hey, it's too early in the day for us to all be drunk. Anyways, we digress. The Spirit enables us to follow Jesus, and here's the deal point others to Him, the wonderful works of God. What is the greatest work of God? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some have torn this passage of Scripture from its context and attempt to say that the filling of the Holy Spirit must be evidenced by supernatural angelic tongues. That makes this passage prescriptive instead of descriptive. So this passage is describing an event. It's not prescribing an event. Right? It's telling us what happened, not, not what has to happen. When you get filled with the Spirit, it's not a matter of speaking angelic tongues. It's not even a matter of speaking human tongues in other languages. What it is a matter of is being empowered and enabled to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, to point them to him, and to build up the local church. The disciples spoke in the nation's own languages the wonderful works of God. You say, okay, so, so give, me some, give me some evidence of that. And here we are, here's Peter. He's about to lay it down, right? Men of Israel, men of Israel, hear these words, listen up. I've got something to say. And he's speaking in the languages of the people that are gathered. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested, attested rather, attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. I was talking to the family about this the other day. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees, those highly religious people, They had to intentionally close their mind to the reality of who Jesus is. Because his miracles, his signs, his wonders, they were there not just because he cared about people, but they were given to him and through him to establish him as the Christ, as the Messiah. When he did a miracle, it was to prove to the people of the day that he was different that he was Christ, that he was God in the flesh. And, and now Peter's reminding him, hey, I'm going to tell you something. You know what happened to Jesus. In fact, him being delivered by determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Now this is Peter, who when Jesus was being tried, cursed swore that he didn't know Jesus, ran away from a little girl. Are you following? Do you know the story of, of Peter? He's, he's following after Jesus. Jesus gets captured, and, and then he's kind of listening, and then he's going off and warming his hands by a fire, and they're like, oh, what? Um, why am I mumbling? I'm sorry. Warming his hands by the fire, and a little girl's like, weren't you with Jesus? No. Now, was he a coward or was he bitter? We don't really know. And he was angry and he wasn't happy. But here he is, the same guy, looking at all of these people and saying, You crucified him. Whew, dude, Whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus is God in the flesh. He died on the cross for our sins, but it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. He's God in the flesh. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I should not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in haze, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the, the ways of life, you will make me full of joy in your presence. And, oh, stay on track. Men and brethren, let me speak freely. Now, here's Peter talking. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. David, the one that wrote this, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. He's dead and buried. His bones are, he's corruption, right? His flesh is rotted away. So he's about to say, obviously, <laughs> being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of that fruit of his body according to the flesh he should raise up the Christ to sit on his throne he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades and his flesh did not see corruption so he's basically teaching these people you thought this psalm you thought in this psalm David was referring to himself David was not referring to himself. He was referring to that heritage, or he was referring to that that future grand, 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 grandson, Jesus. Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, God, being exalted to the right hand of God, I'm sorry, Lord help me. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear, people speaking in these tongues of other nations, he's poured this out, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on your right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. So here is Peter clearing up some misunderstanding that these people had about David. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both the Supreme One, that's what the Lord means, that's God, and Christ. And now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, The rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what what do we do? What do we do? Up until that moment, the people that stood in the crowd prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, who previously had cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and worshiped Christ as he came into Jerusalem, these people had also cried out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Before the crucifixion of Christ, this crowd was crying out for his death. And now Peter, listen, was it Peter's words? Was it the power of Peter's persuasion that turned this mob from hatred of Christ to fear? What was the power? It was the Holy Spirit who had filled Peter to speak of the wonderful works of God which was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He preached the gospel to them. He corrected their thinking. And he revealed to them the one they had crucified was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And their reaction now, God said, I will build my church, was what do we do? What do we do now? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent means to have a turning of your mind, a turning, a changing of your mind, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Folks, that is the power of the Holy Spirit of God, Peter, the example of empowerment. Formerly someone that cursed, swore he didn't know Jesus, cut off a guy's ear. I mean, this is Peter. He is a mess, and yet he is the first example we see of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit filling him and preaching the gospel. Peter, so some of you are here, and you say, I'm a mess. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Ask for the Holy Spirit to empower you. The empowerment of the church is not in programs. Listen, I love E-Kids. It's a program. It is not the empowerment of the church. The Holy Spirit is the empowerment of the church. I love our food pantry. The food pantry is not the power of the church, but if the Holy Spirit fills those that are working in our food pantry and they speak the truth of Christ to those that come in and they bless them, folks, that is the power of God. That is the power of God to build the church. And so the question I have for, for, for you is, are you a part of this amazing church? Remember how he started. Those who have trusted in Christ alone as their personal savior get to be part of his amazing church. They immediately receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they are sealed unto the day of redemption. That means, in other words, once you are saved, you are always saved. Once you are a child of God, He never aborts you. You are a child of God. You have a spiritual DNA that cannot be corrupted. You are sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. Hey, all Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources, and where you can contact us directly. That web address, again, is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.